This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. As always, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by our guests are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Civic or PAX. Every day, 100 civilians are killed in conflict and countless more are harmed. Yet their perspectives are often missing from the stories we tell about war. This is the Civilian Protection Podcast, a monthly podcast produced by Civic and PAX. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Civilian Protection Podcast. I'm Annie Scheel, U.S. Advocacy Director at Center for Civilians in Conflict, or CIVIC. And I'm Mark Arlasco, Military Advisor from PAX. Our organizations both work in conflicts around the world to protect civilians caught in war. And if you're just tuning in to Season 3, this season we're exploring civilian protection issues in light of current events, as well as what the headlines are missing. And today's episode focuses on Nagorno-Karabakh, a disputed region between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which is home to ethnic Armenians. Following a 24-hour military operation by Azerbaijan to seize power of the region on September the 19th, tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians are fleeing the region. This morning in Stepanakert, the capital of Nagorno-Karabakh, the government of Azerbaijan said it had mounted a counter-terrorist operation. But the ethnic Armenians who live here saw it as an unprovoked and opportunistic attack. On the streets of Stepanakert, the main city in Nagorno-Karabakh, panic took over as mortars pounded its surroundings. Almost all of the ethnic Armenian population have now fled to Armenia following an Azerbaijani military offensive last week. Armenia has asked the European Union for assistance to help it deal with the influx of refugees. And to help us make sense of the situation and the impact on civilians there, we are very pleased to welcome Alyssa de Carbonell, Deputy Director for Europe and Central Asia at the International Crisis Group. Welcome, Alyssa, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, and I want to get to the headlines that we've been seeing over the last uh, few days and weeks and months. But before we do that, for listeners who maybe haven't followed or haven't heard about this conflict until the last few weeks, can you start by helping us put this into broader historical context? What do we need to know about the history of Nagorno-Karabakh over the last few years or even decades? Yeah, so it's a region that has seen decades of displacement and conflict. Um, so Nagorno-Karabakh itself um, is internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan, um, but it's an enclave um, in the country that is primarily populated by ethnic Armenians, um, and that's basically been under self-rule and self-governance by de facto authorities supported by Armenia since a war in the 1990s. Um, so in brief, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh declared independence from Azerbaijan in 1991, so after the Soviet uh, Union collapse and the war that followed from 1992 to 1994 pitted Azerbaijan's um, armed forces against Nagorno-Karabakh rebels backed by the Armenian army. Azerbaijan lost control of Nagorno-Karabakh and um, seven adjacent or surrounding regions <clears throat> leading to the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people, of Azerbaijanis. Um, and the peace process that we saw in the decades since then um, really led nowhere. Um, it was led by the OSCE and, and grievances have proliferated uh, certainly on um, 
Azerbaijan's side. Um, things really shifted in 2020. Um, while the world was engulfed in the pandemic um, and just um, before the U.S. presidential elections, um, Azerbaijan retook in a very brief but brutal war um, the surrounding regions uh, to Nagorno-Karabakh and part of the enclave itself. Um, some 7,000 people died in six weeks of fighting and Armenia emerged really weakened. Its um, army um, was um, really in a, in a terrible state compared to before the conflict. Um, it withdrew its forces from Nagorno-Karabakh as part of a ceasefire brokered by Russia. Um, and since then, we've seen peace talks um, and conservative efforts by Washington, Moscow, and Brussels uh, to try to reach a peace settlement between Armenia and Azerbaijan um, over, especially in the last um, year and a bit since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, in part of those talks, Nagorno-Karabakh and the fate of residents there has always been the most painful point. But Azerbaijan refused to discuss it as part of its peace talks with Armenia because um, it sees it as an internal matter. It sees it part of its territory and therefore not something to discuss with Armenia. As a result, um, international powers and Armenia had pushed for direct talks between de facto authorities in Stepanakert and the main city of Nagorno-Karabakh and um, Baku, but those never went ahead and now we're seeing sort of the results of the failure of diplomacy and, and, and countries resorting to fort, force rather than diplomacy once again in the region. And that, of course, uh, brings us to the last few weeks in which the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh has uh, rapidly escalated and made headlines what have we seen in the last few weeks and where does that leave us today? Yeah, so the situation really got much, much worse um, in December last year. So for the last nine months um, or so, residents, uh, the 120,000 or so residents of Nagorno-Karabakh have been living under an effective blockade. Um, it led to a steadily deteriorating humanitarian situation. Um, there was growing alarm, especially over the summer, of shortages of food, of fuel, of medicine. Um, <clears throat> and um, there was a lot of diplomacy to try to get Baku to lift the blockade and allow humanitarian convoys in, um, allow people there to, you know, have access to basic um, supplies. Um, I think, you know, Azerbaijan was relatively impervious to the diplomatic pressure. That was a lot of intense diplomacy, including um, sort of joint efforts by Russia and the West, which is incredibly rare, right? Um, and it appeared that there might be um, a breakthrough um, and I should say that as part of that diplomacy, um, there was uh, sort of repeated assurances by Azerbaijan to EU and U.S. diplomats who have told us that, 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 that Baku didn't plan to resort to military action. Um, so there was a buildup of Azerbaijani forces in the beginning of September along the border with Armenia and sort of Armenia was warning 
um, about this. There's an EU mission that's deployed to the border, which was also warning that they saw a buildup. But um, Azerbaijan continued to reassure um, the US and EU diplomats involved in diplomacy in the region that it wasn't going to resort to force. And it appeared that um, there were two trucks loaded with humanitarian supplies that entered Nagorno-Karabakh um, on September 18th, so the day before Azerbaijan launched its military offensive. So there was this kind of glimmer of hope um, and then um, and then the military offensive. And of course, what we've seen um, after that 24-hour operation is the um, surrender of the de facto authorities there, um, the effective end of self-rule for the region and the exodus of almost all of its residents now to Armenia. Wow. So when, when you speak about the exodus of its population, I mean, this is really widespread displacement, right? So can, can you speak a little bit more about how civilians are being impacted and the humanitarian needs that, uh, that we're seeing right now? Yeah, so, I mean, I should say that that is uh, really a, um, the priority at the moment is to help Armenia cope with the influx of, you know, now we're looking at 100,000 plus people at the moment. Um, so Armenia hadn't prepared publicly for an exodus of people despite the military buildup because it didn't want to encourage the situation in which people were panicking or there was a preparation. Um, authorities there said they had prepared for 40,000 people to arrive um, in, the, in the days um, just before and just after the military operation by Azerbaijan. Um, so of course now we're seeing um, just, you know, tens of thousands, huge numbers. Um, people are arriving, um, they're taking a days-long journey to get to Armenia. They're arriving in Armenia also after having lived this experience of um, lack of supplies, of, um, you know, stores being empty. There was no bread in bakeries in the days before the military operation. So people are arriving hungry, uh, traumatized, um, some people uh, burnt their homes and their possessions because they didn't want others to take um, control or of of their houses or of their personal belongings. Um, so there's, you know, there's a very fearful and anxious population that is ethnically Armenian but different from Armenia and therefore difficult to integrate. Um, and so there have been pledges of financial support from international powers um, and that's really important and that work will have to move ahead. Um, you know, there's a second aspect to this, um, which is with regards to Baku's responsibility now that it controls Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, we saw a UN expert mission on the weekend to Nagorno-Karabakh. It was small, it was limited, it was very brief, um, but it's also the first visit of the UN agencies to the region in over 30 years. So, um, you know, it's very important um, and there should be more visits. I'm just, I'm curious, why so long? Why has it been such a, a, a complete dearth of, of UN, uh, you know, um, influence or, or, or attempts to in, in any way uh, come into the region besides, I imagine, WFP or others providing uh, foodstuffs? This is a battle over the same dispute over 
territory and sovereignty plays out with respect to humanitarian access to the region. So we see not only in Nagorno-Karabakh, but in other places also, um, that the ICRC are some of the only actors on the ground um, in this fight, where in this case, Nagorno-Karabakh, um, uh, you know, when it when with regards to Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan um, sees that as part of its territory and doesn't want to allow um, international actors to work there without... Um, entering and exiting through Azerbaijan because it is seen as part of its territory. So it's, it's all part of the, um, it's humanitarian access becoming prey to politics um, in a wider conflict. I mean, you both know that that's not the only region where this is the case, right? Yeah, no, that's, so. that's incredibly disappointing and, and, and very upsetting. Now you touched on the, on the widespread displacement and with, with tens of thousands of ethnic Armenians, you know, nearly the entire population of Nagorno-Karabakh, now apparently fleeing the region, uh, many have described this situation as ethnic cleansing. How can we expect these humanitarian impacts to develop over time and, and what's needed to address them now? Yeah, so, I mean, there's the short-term um, humanitarian help and that sort of immediate crisis, right? Um, but there's also the long-term factor, obviously. People who have left um, feel completely abandoned by the international community. Um, there are people who are incredibly fearful and distrustful and traumatized, not only by um, the recent military operation, but by the fighting in 2020, or sometimes in some cases by the memories of the fighting you know, in the 1990s, um, there were claims and brutal video clips in the 2020 war that emerged of, um, of human rights violations by armed forces, which has fueled sort of the fear and anxiety. Um, so you have a population that, that fled in, in uh, you know, just dropped everything and left. So the UN mission that went, you know, described a, a sort of a ghost city now when you saw journalists who went there because everything was kind of, you know, there were prams in, in Stepanakert, the main city of Nagorno-Karabakh that had just been left and trash. And so you have people leaving thinking they're never going to return. Um, there should be everything done to also think about the longer term, think about um, Azerbaijan's responsibility for uh, protecting cultural sites, um, for protecting property, for giving people the opportunity. I know that this sounds crazy to most of the people who have just lived this trauma, but to potentially think about one day returning to visit or um returning to the region in whatever capacity. So there is a responsibility both to think about like the short-term humanitarian imperatives, but also the longer-term responsibilities that Azerbaijan has um, having control over that region for the residents and their properties and what they might want to do in the future. And I want to ask you also about the role of other states in this conflict. Uh, for example, a Russian peacekeeping force has been present uh, in Nagorno-Karabakh since 2020. What has Russia's role been in this conflict and in this latest escalation? What about other neighboring states like Turkey or Iran or the EU? 
there's been a big geopolitical shift in the region um, that, I mean, I guess you can pick a time. I would say the biggest shift was in 2020, but it's all been relatively um, gradual development. Um, Russia has, a lot of people are seeing this as a sign that Russia has lost influence and sway in its neighborhood. Certainly Russia brokered um, and was the guarantor of the ceasefire um, in 2020 between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and it deployed peacekeepers that were, you know, there to, um, as a sign of reassurance for the people of Nagorno-Karabakh um, that uh, that Russia was going to guarantee their safety and act as, uh, I mean, there was always a question over the mandate of the peacekeepers and how much ability they had long term, but the, but certainly they were on the ground. Um, <clears throat> the context changed pretty radically after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We see that um, there was conflict between Armenia and Russia, um, that Russia might also, and even before the invasion, saw uh, Azerbaijan is an important ally, so it was always balancing between the two um, and its relationship between the two. Um, Armenia began to pivot more towards the West in recent months, um, which created a lot of anger in Moscow. Um, but regardless, the, there was a clear inability um, and lack of desire by Moscow to really do anything to deter Baku. Now, it should be said um, that Azerbaijan has been relatively impervious to a lot of international pressure, um, and um, it's got the backing of Turkey, which is one of its staunchest regional allies and arguably the only um, region, other regional power with sort of military force um, to, to be able to flex its muscles in the region um, just after the military operation that happened um, as leaders were meeting at um, the UN General Assembly in New York. Um, president, uh, the Turkish president used his opening statements to basically say that he supported Azerbaijan um, in every way and defended its territorial integrity. So that, um, and, and to Russia and Turkey are also, have always been involved in this balancing act where they have a very strategic relationship but are on the opposite side of different conflicts. So those are the regional actors, um, the most important regional actors. Um, and um, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the EU and the US took a much bigger role in diplomacy in the region, something that was unthinkable almost before the invasion of Ukraine. There, it, it opened up a space um, for other actors to become involved. And there were three parallel tracks for diplomacy between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, so there were even two peace draft peace agreements for a while, one sort of in Russian one and one that was um, drafted by Armenia and Azerbaijan through um, meetings facilitated by Washington and Brussels. Um, they have been very important actors on the diplomatic front and they continue to be. Um, but I think perhaps the best way to answer your question is the different reaction of diplomats from Russia and Turkey and from 
um, the West um, that we spoke to in the days um, after the military offensive. On the one hand, you had EU and US diplomats who were incredibly angry, um, disappointed, um, and yet trying to sort of keep their reactions in private, depending on the country, because there is still a hope of pushing diplomacy forward in talks between Armenia and Azerbaijan, despite all of the trauma and the situation that we see developing in Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and that has been part of the problem over the last nine months, where they were trying to put pressure on Azerbaijan to lift the blockade um, to Nagorno-Karabakh, but also continue on um, facilitating talks and peace talks. And on the other hand, you had reactions of diplomats from Russia and Turkey that we at the International Crisis Group, me and my team speak to, um, where there was a lot of sort of dismissiveness of Armenia. There wasn't a huge amount of surprise and anger in the same way that this has happened. Um, there was a feeling that okay, maybe Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh should have done more um, to advance talks. Uh, and despite Azerbaijan being really not offering many compromises and concessions in the last years after winning the 2020 war effectively, that you know this was the defeated party and they should just kind of move things forward. So uh, a really quick pivot by Turkish and Russian diplomats to say, okay, well... <laughs> Can we now move things forward? Let's go on. And both actors have a stake in seeing peace talks move forward because they would open trade routes in the region. Um, they would offer an opportunity in Turkey's case, perhaps for Armenia, Turkey, normalization talks to continue. So, you know, it's, it is striking to see that really big difference in the way that the actors the regional actors, and then the Western powers who have been involved in the region um, reacted to developments. And what are the risks for future or renewed conflict in, in the region, as well as, you know, risks of other forms of civilian harm, other widespread human rights risks that you're concerned about? Um, so that's a very good question. The military operation appears to be contained at the moment um, to Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, but there have been flare-ups um, over the past year periodically on the international border between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, there was a big buildup of troops there as well um, in recent weeks. And we've seen from experience, you know, monitoring and watching the situation at Crisis Group that having those troops in close proximity um, is a very volatile situation. And um, even as uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan were involved in peace talks, you've seen these periodic escalations. So that is a concern and it continues um, to worry us. Um, so the best way sort of to avoid renewed escalation and renewed potential of violence in the region is particularly, you know, in, in this moment when um, many in Armenia are angry and upset by what has happened. Um, and certainly Azerbaijan is feeling um, rather emboldened and empowered, I think, um, is a fair characterization, you know, in, in the days um, following 
the surrender of de facto authorities in Nagorno-Karabakh, um, it's really quite important to move talks ahead between Armenia and Azerbaijan in spite of everything. So the onus for that is really on Washington and Brussels and Moscow to help facilitate those talks. And, you know, hopefully this week um, there will be a meeting on the sidelines of um, a meeting of European political community um, in Granada. So so that's, you know, that's, that's I think, uh, one risk of escalation. And then there is just the future, I mean, not just, there is the future and fate of the displaced people. Um, it's, it's just, it's not at all the end of the story. Um, these people are displaced, they've lived through trauma, they have a really long road ahead, and um, it's going to be a long haul to help integrate them and also to help offer them choices and opportunities um, that I think are very difficult to perceive at this current moment in time. You know, you, you just touched on this a bit, um, speaking about the, the international community and the meetings that are coming up. But what do you think is needed more broadly from the international community with regards to this, to this conflict? Um, we've spoken quite a lot about the humanitarian crisis, but I would like to repeat that um, this is a huge displacement of people in a very short period of time who have already lived through a rather catastrophic period over the last, um, you know, nine months since December. So, so that's really the priority. Um, and there's, and that mass exodus is, um, I mean, it's a tragedy and there's no way to restore those, uh, broken communities and those lives that were lost. Um, and, there's never going to be a way for Nagorno-Karabakh most likely to return to the status quo under which it operated for the, you know, three decades um, now. Uh, but for the international community, um, it's incredibly important to remain engaged over the longer term. Um, I know that people make those pleas about every conflict that they work in or that they watch. Um, you know, I work on Ukraine and there's a whole debate over staying engaged <laughs> for support. Um, I think we have seen too often um, how powers are in the region resorting to force rather than diplomacy. Um, diplomacy works. <laughs> it can. Um, there are these ongoing talks between Armenia and Azerbaijan. They are going to be critical to finding some kind of durable, sustainable um, peace in the region. Um, that's this, despite the sort of trauma that we've seen in the last days. So even though it's difficult to think about the longer term now when there's such a um, moving and tragic and you know humanitarian crisis unfolding um i think it's it's really important and international actors are right to keep the ball rolling on on those longer term talks thank you so much for joining us Alyssa. really appreciate it thank you in related news on wednesday azerbaijan's president pulled out of a planned meeting with armenia's prime minister in spain dealing a blow to efforts to rescue a peace process between the countries. In the United States, Chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Senator Ben Cardin called for the U.S. to withhold security assistance to Azerbaijan 
after its operations in Nagorno-Karabakh. Similarly, in the House, U.S. Representatives Jim Costa, Adam Schiff, and Frank Pallone also introduced a so-called 502B resolution to demand information about Azerbaijan's human rights violations and open the door for Congress to block or limit U.S. security assistance. Elsewhere in the world, in Kosovo, a deadly gunfight this week, along with U.S. warnings of Serbian troop buildups at the Kosovo border, raised concerns about the possibility for a renewed conflict in the region, and with it, civilian harm risks. That's it for today's episode. The Civilian Protection Podcast is brought to you by Center for Civilians in Conflict and PACS, two NGOs working to improve the lives of civilians in conflict. Today's episode was written and edited by Annie Scheel, Mark Arlasco, and Aaron Bell, and produced by The Podcast Guru. Hajran Ailey and Matt Longmore made sure we're online. Thank you to our guest, Alyssa DeCarbonell, for joining and sharing her expertise. You can find us on Spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts on this episode or topics you'd like us to cover by emailing civilianprotectionpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at protectionpod to stay up to date on our episodes and guest speakers and to get behind the scenes content like full interviews. You can also find behind the scenes content and interviews on our YouTube channel, as well as civiliansinconflict.org slash podcast and protectionsofcivilians.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>